0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you ever feel like facts without my voice, you can get a copy of the Your Brain on Facts book. If you want my voice without the facts, I'm available for voiceover work. Email me at moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. A quick content warning, there is a mention of sexual activity toward the top of the show and mentions of suicide about two-thirds of the way in. In 2003, Oprah Winfrey used her massive daytime television platform to warn millions of people that teenage girls were attending parties wearing wild shades of lipstick and performing oral sex on boys. The boy with the most colors of lipstick smudges would win the accolade of his peers. These were called rainbow parties. The story was picked up by newspapers and television stations across the country. Parents were panicking. There was one small detail that oprah missed though there had not been a single verifiable instance of a rainbow party ever my name's moxie and this is your brain on facts your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health and it doesn't seem to take much to send them into a tizzy. And it's not just parents. We, as people, are pretty prone to overreacting to the first piece of information we receive. Modern media makes the spreading of these new urban legends basically effortless. But false panics and hoaxes are far from a new invention. They've always been with us. Most people know the story surrounding Orson Welles' radio play The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. No relation. It was presented in the form of a newscast detailing the invasion of Earth by beings from another world, clearly bent on our destruction. Listeners thought the broadcast was real. There was mayhem in the streets, as as many as a million people fled their homes or armed themselves and made ready to fight off the alien hordes. We know all about the panic that this radio play caused. It was in all the papers. Therein lies the problem. Newspapers of the day greatly exaggerated the situation. To begin with, not that many people were tuned in to the Mercury Theater on the air that evening. Only 2% of households with radios even heard the play, which repeatedly identified itself as such during the performance. Some CBS radio affiliates even cut away from the broadcast in favor of local programming, further shrinking the potential audience. Most people were listening instead to the ratings juggernaut, ventriloquist Edgar Bergen. I still fail to understand how a ventriloquist act really worked on the radio, but if it makes you happy. So why then, if so few people heard it and fewer still were confused by it, did newspapers separately and independently make the situation sound much worse than it was? They were motivated by fear, not of aliens, but of the radio. The wireless radio was the first real threat to the superiority of the newspaper as the public's primary source of information. Reporters and editors saw this as an opportunity to prove to advertisers and regulators that radio was dangerous irresponsible and not to be trusted. A similar thing had happened in England 12 years earlier, with a fictitious report that an angry mob of unemployed workers were running amuck in London, looting and destroying everything in sight. The National Gallery had been ransacked, the Savoy Hotel blown up, the Houses of Parliament were being attacked with trench mortars, and the Big Ben Clock Tower had been razed to the ground. Like any good radio play, the narration was accompanied by sound effects. A fair few people did take to the streets, even fleeing past the famous buildings that had been reportedly destroyed, while others desperately clogged police phone lines. The BBC tried to ease tensions by reminding people that the report was a comedy skit entitled Broadcasting in the Barricades, ending their message with London is safe, Big Ben is still chiming, and all is well. Well, if you can't trust the BBC, at least we can still rely on Armed Forces Radio. People fought until 1947, when in May, WVTR in Tokyo began to issue a series of bulletins about a 20-foot-high monster that had risen from the sea to lay waste to the area. Bullets were useless against this dragon-like creature. Listeners could hear terrified shrieks, people shouting orders over bullhorns, heavy weapons, and massive vehicles rolling by. When the beast reached downtown and the intrepid reporter who'd provided the play-by-play snuck closer, the monster opened its mouth and congratulated WVTR on its fifth anniversary in a high soprano voice. That's right, an hour's worth of breaking news to pat themselves on the back. During the broadcast, police phone lines were tied up with people trying to get information. U.S. military police were told to stand ready, and Japanese police were told to prepare to go on the offensive. British troops in the area demanded rifles and grenades so they could assist in the assault. All the while, station personnel declined to give more information. They finally admitted the joke when the broadcast was over, repeating this clarification until the end of the broadcast day, though nervous phone calls would continue into the next morning. Top Brass was not pleased. Five men would be relieved of duty when all was said and done. The commanding officer of WVTR, the two authors of the script, the civilian program director, and the private first class who actually read the bulletins. If official media sources can do all this, imagine what would happen if some nefarious party took control of the airwaves. As it happens, we don't have to imagine it. In fact, I did an entire episode on it. Episode number 96 Do Not Adjust Your Set. Signal hijacking has plagued broadcast media almost since its inception. The 1980s and 90s were a heyday for hackers as consumer electronics developed at a tremendous pace, giving tricksters and ne'er do wells all the tools they needed. From a disgruntled HBO subscriber calling himself Captain Moonlight to the infamous and still unsolved Max Hedrum signal takeover of WGN and the Chicago PBS affiliate. Though technology has advanced from analog to digital and studios have tightened their security, hijackings have continued, such as in 2013 when pranksters in Montana realized their local CW affiliate, WKR TV, had left their emergency alert system computer on the factory presets. During the Steve Wilco talk show, the emergency klaxon blared, and a text crawl began at the top of the screen, accompanied by an official-sounding baritone man's voice, warning viewers, Civil authorities in your area have reported that the bodies of the dead are rising from their graves and attacking the living. Follow the messages on screen that will be updated as information becomes available. Do not attempt to approach or apprehend these bodies, as they are considered extremely dangerous. This alert would go out again during that evening's episode of The Bachelor. Aficionados of drop-D tuning will probably recognize that message as the beginning of the Anthrax song, Fight Till You Can't, from the album Worship Music. No major panics were reported from that incident, but it didn't help matters when a morning radio show in Wisconsin played the alert so they could then joke about it. The problem was, their station was a designated primary entry-point station for the emergency alert system, meaning that while they were talking and laughing about it, it triggered the system to automatically send the fake alert out to all other local radio and TV stations one of whom replayed it as a legitimate alert. There are no records indicating the perpetrators were ever identified. And this was certainly not the first time zombies were used to fool people. By the time the British rock group Zombies' single Time of the Season became a hit in the U.S. in 1968, the band had already been dissolved for about two years. They weren't even aware of their success, and the individual members had gone on to do other things. A hit was a hit, however, and Michigan-based Delta Promotions wouldn't let a trivial detail like the band not existing get in their way. If you think that's preposterous, wait until you hear that there were actually two bands, one from Texas and one from Michigan, that toured different parts of the country as the zombies. The ubiquity of social media in our lives today would make this nearly impossible, but it worked pretty easily back in the days of rotary phones and mimeographed flyers. This was also a time when the music industry, like Golden Age Hollywood, had little respect for individual artists, changing lineups of bands at the slightest sign of pushback or insubordination. The band The Drifters went through 60 members in their time. Delta Promotion told the new bands that the original Zombies Were No More and that they had secured full rights to their catalog. Which, of course, they had not. Delta also failed to mention the existence of the second Zombies band. Before launching the Zombies tour, Delta asked the Texas band to play as the recently disbanded group Rose Garden, despite the fact that they only knew one Rose Garden song, and that Rose Garden's lead singer was female. Audiences were often disappointed by the fake zombies, which lacked some of the instruments and all of the sound of the original. But the band would be on the bus and 50 miles down the highway before any real trouble could arise. A charade of this magnitude can't last forever. Things began to fall apart when Delta fielded a fake version of The Animals, which was outed by actual members of The Animals. When Delta tried to make an Archie's band based on the comic book characters, property owners Kirshner Productions brought their lawyers to bear immediately. Delta promotions collapsed under their hubris shortly thereafter, and all of the bands went home. After returning to Texas, two of the fake zombies, Frank Beard and Dusty Hill, were joined by Billy Gibbons to form the famous and furry ZZ Top. Bonus fact, of the three the one without the beard is Frank Beard. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps... You're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books, on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye bye. I'll be seeing you. Raising fake zombies is one way to communicate with the dead. Spiritualism, a system of belief based on supposed communications with the spirit world through practitioners known as mediums, quite another. When news of Cecilia Weiss's death from a stroke in 1913 reached her son Harry Houdini, it reportedly caused him to faint. He and his mother had been very close. Contrary to custom, the family delayed her burial in New York so that he could travel from Copenhagen, where he was performing, to see her one last time. Houdini would mourn painfully for months. He would go so far as to seek out seances in hopes of reaching her again, but the experiences failed to bring him any closure. One medium in particular sent him on a decade-long quest to debunk spiritualism. There were clues that the séance was not exactly on the level when the medium delivered a Happy Christmas message purportedly from Weiss. For one thing, they were Jewish. For another, Houdini's mother didn't speak English. That's the story as most of us heard it, and it's a fun one to retell, along with the patently incorrect versions of Houdini's death. He did not die in a failed escape attempt, but a punch to the abdomen that burst an infected appendix. No, Houdini was aware and skeptical of spiritualism for years before his beloved mother's death. His first séance experience was at the impressionable age of 11, but it didn't take long for schoolboy Harry to smell a rat. He and a friend made a hobby of disproving mediums, and later, knowing the tricks as well as he did, he and his wife-slash-stage partner Bess Performed as mediums for a time, until he found the deceit too distasteful to continue. The specific incident that most likely has been twisted into the Mother Seance story involved author Arthur Conan Doyle and his wife Jean. Doyle became a passionate champion of spiritualism after losing his son in the Great War. In 1922, Lady Doyle professed to channel Cecilia Weiss. Through automatic writing, in which the medium's hand is guided from the spirit realm. What followed was an embarrassing series of mistakes, which Houdini, to his credit, was graciously quiet about. The Doyles interpreted his lack of myth-busting as a tacit endorsement for spiritualism, and spoke of it publicly, forcing Houdini to make his true feelings known. This spotlight was what pitted him against what remained of the spiritualism movement, some ten years after his mother's death. After Houdini's death from peritonitis in 1926 at the age of 52, his widow Bess gave spiritualism one last bite at the apple, issuing the Houdini Séance Challenge, offering $10,000, the equivalent of about $140,000 today, to anyone who could make contact with Harry Houdini. The couple had set up a secret code word to be used by the one who passed first, to prove definitively that it was them. For ten years, Bess entertained attempts by mediums to no avail, though one man, Arthur Ford, a pastor of the First Spiritualist Church of New York City, did claim success publicly, even twisting Bess's refutation to bolster his claim. Bess would die seventeen years after Harry, but they would not rest together. Her family was Roman Catholic and forbade her to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. They lie an hour's drive apart, Harry in Queens and Bess in Hawthorne, New York. Composer and pianist Alexander Levy, guitar legend Jimi Hendrix, singers Janice Joplin and Amy Winehouse. Just a few of the members of the so called 27 Club, musicians and other celebrities who died at the age of 27 through circumstances tragic and usually drug-fueled. There is a lesser-known curse in the entertainment circles, the curse of the white Bic lighter. This legend holds that many a musical great died with a white Bic-brand cigarette lighter on their person. The list has significant overlap with the 27 Club. Some living musicians, like superstitious actors with the word Macbeth, take the white Bic curse to be gospel, and won't carry or even use one if it's handed to them. The important thing to know about this legend is that it is a legend, i.e. a myth. There is no concrete evidence that more dead musicians had white bic lighters at the time of death than any other cross-section of society. More importantly, while Joplin, Hendrix and Jim Morrison are among the most prominent members of the white bic lighter club, they all died in 1970 and 71. Bic produced the first disposable lighter of any color in 1973. The other most common victim of the white Bic lighter, Nirvana frontman and heroin user Kurt Cobain, had two lighters on him at the time of his suicide, neither of which were white. Side note, while drugs willingly taken get the lion's share of blame for Jimi Hendrix's death, an honorable mention goes to the paramedics treating him during his final overdose— they left him unattended and sitting up, rather than lying on his side, causing him to aspirate vomit. As I was coming up in the 1980s, there was one moral panic buzzing about more than anything else. The Satanic Panic. Particularly as it relates to Dungeons & Dragons. The media loved to report on Dungeons & Dragons being associated with violence, teen suicide, murder basically everything bad you can scare adults with, and linked it all right back to paper, pencil, and dice. For those who are not as much in the know, Dungeons & Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game created by Gary Gygax in 1974. The overall setting is vaguely medievally sword and sorcery, players create their own character with all kinds of characteristics, and one player acts as a dungeon master, a sort of Q-like character orchestrating everything. It began as just the character sheets and one dense rulebook, and has grown on to be basically a media empire. It was an instant hit with the types of persons who spend a great deal of time indoors imagining things anyway—my kind of people. What turned it into a moral panic was the disappearance of James Dallas Egbert III in 1979. Egbert was an extremely gifted young man, studying computer programming at Michigan State University, having enrolled at the age of 16. Egbert became involved with a local Dungeons & Dragons group, which liked to LARP, or do live-action role-play, in abandoned steam tunnels under the college. It was into these steam tunnels that Egbert had determined to disappear one night to take his own life by overdosing on drugs. When Egbert's family hadn't heard from him for a while, they hired private investigator William Deere to find him. During the investigation, Deere learned about Egbert's Dungeons & Dragons hobby and decided to make that the focus of his investigation. Egbert's disappearance came to be blamed on a Dungeons & Dragons game gone awry. The idea was that the game had driven him from his good senses, that he lost the ability to discern reality from fiction and had gone off on some insane delusional quest, thinking it was real. This was all supposition on one person's part. The media got wind of this, and it planted the seeds of D&D as a corrupter of youth and twister of young minds. The truth was more mundane and much less riveting. Egbert had survived his suicide attempt, and basically went into hiding— bouncing around different friends' houses before eventually giving himself up to the private investigator. A private investigator who, if he had been worth his per diem, probably would have focused more on Egbert's history of depression and drug use rather than his hobbies. Headlines go at the top of page one, corrections go at the bottom of page ten, and nobody really cared to report or to recognize the fact that no, D&D wasn't actually the cause of the disappearance of James Dallas Egbert III. As far as the public was concerned, D&D was some scary stuff. And that idea clung on. Three years later, CBS produced a TV movie where a young Tom Hanks plays a character that is effectively Egbert in the creatively titled Mazes and Monsters. No joke. Though joke might be a better definition for one of my favorite hoaxes, one from across the pond that is too good not to share. One stormy day during the Napoleonic Wars, a French ship was wrecked off the coast of an old fishing village clinging to the northeast coast of England. The only survivor was the ship's mascot, a monkey in a sailor suit who had washed ashore. The people of the town of Hartlepool had never seen a monkey before. Or a Frenchman, for that matter. Mistaking the monkey's chattering for the language of the enemy, they convicted the monkey of being a French spy and hung it. Ask the people of Hartlepool if the story is true, and they will tell you with pride that it is. They've named their football mascot Hengus the monkey. One of the men to wear the costume was elected mayor three times. Maybe the movie Secondhand Lions was right. Just because something isn't true, that's no reason you can't believe in it. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But going back to rainbow parties, a study by the New York Department of Health could find no evidence of even one rainbow party ever taking place. The same goes for supposed teenage sex parties where different colored jelly bracelets indicate different sex acts a person is willing to partake in, which I guess at least legitimizes the return of jelly bracelets. Or teenage girls using vodka-soaked tampons to stay drunk in school, or teenage boys huffing fermented human feces to get high. The sage advice of don't believe everything you hear or read is timeless for a reason, So if you see a headline on social media and you think, I can't believe it, maybe you shouldn't. Thanks for spending part of your day with me and stay safe.